0: All right, well today we are continuing in our sermon series in the book of Exodus, which we have titled, Wooed in the Wilderness. So I invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Young disciples, you'll need to write down that passage at the top of your sermon guide. You can find that on page 45 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Today I'm going to be teaching what it means to be broken and built. Now last week we learned that we must enter the kingdom of God through hardship and weakness. And so this week we will see that we must enter the service of God through suffering and failure. With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. In today's passage is Exodus chapter 2 verses 1 to 22, but I will begin reading at verse 10. Church, hear the word of the Lord. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, He struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, do I have any spirit fans in the house? Raise your hand. Okay, a handful maybe a few adults. All right, so if you have kids and you haven't been through that phase, you will, you will. Spirit, for those of you who don't know, is a wild horse of the Wild West. Strong, beautiful, fast, and free. And of course, what do cowboys want to do with a horse like that? Tame it, break him. And historically, that has carried the meaning of breaking his spirit, bending him to your will. So in the movies, that includes things like weakening the horse by withholding food and water, striking it with a whip and branding it with an iron, forcing a saddle on its back and a bit in its mouth, tying it up until you decide to jump on its back and hold on for dear life. But apparently, even apart from ethics, this has never been the best way to go about training a horse. Whereas this was meant to break the horse in order to bend it, the proper method is to break the horse in order to build it so that it can enter the service for which it was created. To slowly, over time, based on a relationship of trust, train the horse to take the saddle, to take the bridle, to take the rider. In the same way, the book of Exodus teaches us that God is set on training his people, breaking them in order to build them. Now, at first glance, that may seem cruel, but we must remember that when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God in the Garden of Eden, humanity That includes us. If we were there, we would have done the same. Humanity chose the way of the wilderness. When we experience hardship, it comes as a result of a fallen world, a world which we caused to fall. And yet at the same time here at Antioch, we acknowledge a tension that we see in the Bible that while we are fully responsible, God is also fully sovereign. Sovereign. That means even in a fallen world, God is working all things according to his good purposes. And this tension is clearly on display as we consider the last words of chapter 1 here in Exodus. As you remember from last week, the Egyptian pharaoh has failed twice in attempting to destroy the population of the people of Israel. And instead, just the opposite has happened, hasn't it? Does he learn his lesson though? No way. He keeps at it like a drunken cowboy. We read in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Y'all, can you imagine this? This coming down from the government? Oh my goodness, all citizens are to be listening for a newborn to give out its first cry. And then when they hear it, they are to rush in check the gender, carry the male baby straight away to the Nile River, toss it in, and then watch to make sure that it either sinks or is eaten by crocodiles. What good could possibly come from that? How could a good God allow for such great evil in His redemption story? Well, The fact that we even have the book of Exodus, authored by a man born in the midst of this situation, shows that there are some trustworthy answers to these hard questions and that the Bible gives them. The first one begins here. We must enter the service of God through suffering. Young disciples, you need that word, suffering. So it is from this context of great suffering that we read at the beginning of chapter 1, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So here we start to get more hints of how God is working good purposes in the suffering of his people. First of all, you might remember that the tribe of Levi... Was cursed because of Levi's behavior and slaughtering the men of Shechem back in the book of Genesis. And yet, the tribe of Levi will be chosen by God to be the priestly tribe. That means from cursed humanity is coming forth this first priest of the tribe of Levi. He will redeem his people. Also, I want you to pay attention to this in the chapter. Over and over, you will see this idea of seeing. All right, young disciples, you need that word, seeing. Notice the mother's motivation in hiding him was that she saw that he was a fine child. Now, let me ask you a question, church. Where else in Scripture have you heard this refrain? And he saw that it was good. At the beginning, Genesis chapter what? Verse 1, at creation and just like in creation, God is seeing all this dark chaos along with the good that he is drawing out of it. And yet, the child's family couldn't see it yet. Isn't that how it works? That's why it's called faith. It took great faith for his mother to do this in verse 3, when she could hide him no longer. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Young disciples, that's how she tried to save her child. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Y'all, we cannot imagine the drama of this moment. Maybe a better word than drama would be trauma. This is something you wouldn't get over quickly in your life. And, like, I don't know if you've seen, like, these AI-generated selfies from the Exodus story. Anybody seen them? Know what I'm talking about? Okay, so in order to help us feel this scene, I want to put one up for you, <laughs> all right? This is, this is the child's mother, Jochebed, and this brave woman literally as you kind of see in this scene before she lets him go she literally released her son afloat into the hands of God that's a scary thing but parents all of us who want to send our children out someday are going to have to do this in one way or another the shrewdness of this though is remarkable in a sense she's actually keeping Pharaoh's law without breaking God's law she's casting her son into the Nile isn't she And to do so in the reeds on a papyrus basket was an ancient way of dropping a baby off at someone's doorstep because it would almost certainly float down to an Egyptian somewhere else at the river's edge. But more than just drama, there's a message being communicated to readers. The word for basket is actually the word for ark, used only in one other place. Where is the word ark used in the Bible? Noah's Ark, right? I was ahead of you on that one, I'm sorry. This is the... uh, That's right, it's summer vibes. That's why there's 12 of us here today. So this is the flood of the world, and there's a connection being made by the author, okay? What is this connection? Just as Noah was raised up by God to build a new people through a watery chaos... This child will suffer his own watery chaos on the way to building a new people. Do you see that? He will go before them. And so here's the message. God sees he is drawing out the good. You can bet on it. Watch this in verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw there it is, the basket among the reeds, and sent her servant women, and she took it. And when she opened it, she, what? Saw the child, and behold, which is another way of saying, see, look, the baby was crying. This is the same thing that the people of Israel will do later in the chapter when they cry out to God for mercy and freedom from their slavery, and look at this. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, if we're going to use the mother's selfie, we might as well use Pharaoh's daughter's selfie. So here she is with the baby. What are the odds that this child would not only survive, but float directly to Pharaoh's own daughter? And what are the odds that Pharaoh's daughter would actually have compassion on this child? Only God could do this. And what he's shouting to us is, if Pharaoh's daughter, a Gentile who doesn't know me at all, could have compassion when a baby is crying out, then the God of the universe who loves you and sought every way to save you, through his own son even, will he not hear your cry and have compassion and mercy on you? That's the message that's coming from this here. And so in doing this, look at this connection to chapter 1. Who does God use in chapter 1 to rescue his people? Anybody who was here last week remember this? Two, two people, two unexpected people. Two midwives, Shiphrah and Puah. So who then does he use in chapter 2? Two? two more unlikely women. The child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter. Do You see how God loves, he delights in using unlikely people. And we might even add a third to this. Look at verse 7. Then the child's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. (laughs) And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will pay you for it. Wow. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Y'all, you can't write this stuff, because if you did, people would say it's too unrealistic and it wouldn't sell. Right? The very revolutionary leader that Pharaoh wants to kill is going to be raised under his nose by his own daughter. Only God can do that kind of thing. And a child's mother gets to receive the child back from the dead, as it were. She has let him go, right? She gets him back, wow. Like, here's the significance of that. The child will grow up fully aware of his ethnic identity and knowing the God of Israel. While at the same time, he will be trained as a prince learning law and economics and sociology. Put those two things together and this is the perfect combination for a leader of God's new nation. A leader named what? Named who? She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. There it is again. Through watery chaos, God is drawing out the good. And here's the point that I want to make from this part of the story. There would not be a revolutionary leader ready to enter the service of God if it wasn't for what? Suffering. If Pharaoh had not decreed genocide, then there would be no Moses drawn out of the water and no people who would one day themselves be drawn out of the water. God wasn't just working despite the suffering. He was working in the suffering. And if we are to be built for the service of God ourselves, There are major parts of the training that can only come through suffering. Listen, if I hadn't almost died when I was 19 and then 21 and then 25, I would never have been ready to die to myself as being a pastor requires. As a friend said to me yesterday, some people look and they see the suit, but they don't see the scar. There's preparation that comes in suffering. Listen, if the Iranian government hadn't persecuted Christians, then we would never have seen the fastest growing church in the history of Persia. If COVID hadn't disoriented the church's rhythms, we would never have seen the faithful rise with commitment to Christ and his church no matter what. And if you hadn't gone through the chaos of your own sufferings, whatever they are today, Whatever they have been across your life. You would never have been prepared for the service for which God created you. Romans eight twenty eight. Probably most of us in this room know it. We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Who are called according to his purpose. Listen. This is not a verse of reactivity. Like... God might draw something good out of the evil that the devil brought your way. That's not what this is about. This is a verse of invincibility that God rules even over the evil itself to always accomplish his good purposes. Do you see that? You are invincible in Christ. You can't mess it up. Some of you think, man, I make one bad decision, the whole thing's gonna fall apart. Or God has allowed something in my life that will never allow me to be able to serve him the way that I want to. And he's going, no, I've taken all of this. You are invincible and I'm working it in a way that will surprise you in its goodness. This past Sunday, church, here in our own state, young man who was on staff, took his own life at church. How can anything good come from that? And yet, watch how God will use it. He will use it to draw people to himself himself. He will use it to harden people's hearts against him who's already rejecting him. He will use it to break down people's idealism about what church is supposed to be. What Christian life is supposed to be. He will use everything, even the very worst thing, for his good purposes. And so I just want to say this. Let the wilderness do its work. I'm going to say this over and over as we preach through this sermon series. Let the wilderness do its work. We must enter the service of God through suffering. And then second this morning, we must enter the service of God through failure. The story continues in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked, There it is again, on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, and he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Young disciples, that's how Moses tried to save. Now, according to the book of Acts, we know that Moses was about 40 years old at this time. And that means that 40 more years of slavery and genocide had passed until this moment. And when we read that Moses went out and looked on his people's suffering, the word means more than seeing. It means to see with understanding. It's the same word used at the end of this chapter when we read that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So here in the scene, Moses knew God's people, his people, and he has the same compassionate impulse to save as God. What high aspiration. I'm going to save God's people single-handedly because look at all the strength and the power and the position that he's given me to do it. The problem wasn't his impulse. It's good aspiration, but it was the way that he carried it out. Moses wants to lead a revolution, but he tries to start it in his own strength through violence and political power. So who's going to bring a charge against the grandson of Pharaoh, right? And he's like, I'm going to strike this guy down. I'll strike anybody down that I want to. I'm not going to get in trouble for it because this is who I am. Moses essentially killed a man just for striking. That also is a connection to another part Of the Old Testament. Anybody know who the person was. Who said I I kill a man. Just for striking me. Lamech. In Genesis chapter 4. Who is a picture of the toxic pride. Of humanity. And yet look at the rejection. That ensues from Moses action. Verse 13. When he went out the next day. Look behold. Two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong. Why do you strike your companion? And he answered. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. As the book of Proverbs teaches us, pride goes before what? A fall. And here Moses falls hard. His credibility with both the Egyptians and the Israelites falls apart. The Israelite is like, who can trust a deceiving murderer? And then Pharaoh is like, who can trust a deceiving traitor? And Pharaoh, he probably already had his suspicions about Moses, but now he can see clearly Moses' ethnicity and intentions. And Moses then is caught in his own failure. And the prince of Egypt, glorious though he was, loses everything. You can think of it like uh, the heir to a Fortune 500 company makes one decision, loses it all. Or the person who is a shoe in to win the presidency, something comes out about what they did earlier in their life. And not only do they lose the election, but they're outcast as a shameful, rotten, despicable person for the rest of their lives. What good could possibly come from this? How could God let his chosen one go through such evil in his redemption story? We read, But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Church, where does Moses go? Where does he go? The land of Midian, which is out in the what? The wilderness. And once again... He's going before his people, who themselves will one day do what? Go out into the wilderness. And this seems kind of random, but he sits down by a well. Why would you do that? Well, in the desert, a well is a good place to be. Because of water, it's probably a good place to rest. It's probably a good spot to cry your eyes out when you've lost everything. But what do you primarily do at a well? What is this action? Drawing out. Have we talked about that this morning? You see, at this well, God is here. And from this total failure, he is already drawing out the good. And here's how it begins to happen in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. That's way more than I got. I thought I had a bunch can't go to seven. Um, Four is glorious. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so quickly today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. So once again, we see the seed of compassion and service in Moses. And despite his circumstances, he delivers the vulnerable. Ruel's seven daughters and then even waters their flock. Like what man in this day, especially a man of royalty, is going to make himself a servant of a bunch of girls? But Moses does. And so they take serious note of his service and they tell their father. And his father's response is what? Verse 20, he said to his daughters, then where is a guy like this? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Which you know in the Old Testament is a sign of friendship. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave, his, he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And he gave birth, she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. In the upside down ways of God. His chosen one is more readily accepted by foreigners than by his own people. And in his humility here, he is content to dwell with them as his new family. He gains a wife and a son and settles down as a shepherd, and yet we gain a sense of longing that is still in his heart because he names his son a word that can be translated either sojourner or driven out, both of which would be appropriate. In this setting. So what you have here. Is not a forsaken man. But a humiliated man. A man who is going to have loads of time. 40 more years in fact. To sit alone. Beside a flock. And think about his failures. And yet this. This. Yes this. Is the way into the service of God. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You see, before Moses could see the Red Sea split in half, he would have to see his pride split in half. Before he could talk with God face to face, he would have to fall hard on his own faith before he could ascend the mountain of glory, he would have to descend the valley of humility. But remember this, church. Humility is not self-deprecation. It's not just putting yourself down. I'm just trash. I'm just junk. I'm just worthless. I won't receive a compliment. I'm so humble. That's not humility. Humility is a true assessment of yourself. What does that mean? Two things. One, that you are worse than you could ever know. And yet more loved than you could ever imagine. Do you know what those converging truths will do to a man or a woman? Well, look at what they did for Moses. Later in the book of Numbers, we read this about him. Moses was a very humble man. In fact, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Young Moses, okay? I don't know if you've seen this scene this movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Young Moses is like the swordsman in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. He thinks that he can strike down anyone. He shows up, pulls out his massive sword, and he's flipping it and spinning it and ready to just strike them down. Take them out. That's young Moses. But broken Moses is like Indiana Jones. So like, Indiana Jones doesn't even try to fight. What does he do? He just pulls out his revolver and bang! Takes the guy down. Now what do I mean by that? I'm not encouraging you to carry a gun around and bang! What do I mean? It is through failure that Moses comes to realize that he can't rely on his own strength. He's learning in his humility to depend on God to work what only God can do through him. That's what humility does. Listen, I don't know what failure has come your way. And it could be as a result of your decisions. Or it could be something that you can't control. And either way, it just feels like failure. But I do know this. If it is bringing about humility, then nothing else could make you more fit for the service of God. And it may feel like it's only leaving you broken. But it's actually leaving you built in the hands of God. And so I say it to you again, church. Let the wilderness do its work. Let it do its work. We must enter the service of God through failure. Just like Moses. And... Just like the one to whom Moses points. You see, this beautiful story is actually just a sign directing us to something far bigger and far greater. And it's this. If suffering and breaking was the way of Christ, then why would it be any different for those who take the name of Christ? It was Christ who was born to save his people in the midst of an evil king's genocide. Remember that from the Christmas story? It was Christ who came from cursed humanity to be a priest and a redeemer to his people. It was Christ whom God the Father saw at birth in the world's dark chaos and said, Oh, it's good. It is very good. It was Christ who would go out into the wilderness to suffer and then come back into the nation to save it was Christ who was more readily accepted by foreigners like the Midianites than the people of God it was Christ who was already great among us and yet became a servant among us it was Christ who came under the sentence of death and suffered the loss of all things It was Christ who was set afloat into a traumatic judgment in order that he might go before us. It was Christ who became the most humble man on the face of the earth, becoming obedient to the point of death. And it was Christ whose seemingly total failure brought about the totally greatest good. Why would God allow His chosen one to go through such evil in His redemption story? So that when you, like broken Moses, come to Him, no longer relying on your own strength to save you and sustain you, He is content to come and dwell with you as a part of His new family. And then, the risen Lord Jesus sends the Holy Spirit not just on the day of Pentecost, but on the day of your salvation, to rule over your life with invincibility, working all your suffering and all your failure together to always draw out the good. So why does this matter? So you can run. That's why it matters. This is what you were made for, to run in the service of God. God's aim is not to break your spirit. The wilderness is not His way of bending you to His will in a cruel way. The wilderness is meant to slowly, over time, based on a relationship of trust, train you to run with endurance the race marked out for you. To take the saddle, to take the bridle, to take the rider. What do I mean by that analogy? I mean this that you become a servant who helps others make it to the finish line as well. That when needs pop up in your household, you're the first one to say, I'll do those dishes, I'll change that diaper. Or when needs pop up in God's church, you're the first one to say, I'll clean up after a wedding. I'll change those diapers. I don't have to have anything flashy. If God wants that for my life, then I will go with fear and trembling. But until then, I'm going to wash feet, I'm going to serve, I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to clean out gutters. Whatever you need, Lord, whatever your people needs, Lord, whatever this community needs, Lord, whatever this world needs, Lord, I'm your servant. And look at the irony of this church, that every week we come to a table where something is broken in order to build you up. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread And after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken. There it is for you, build you up. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today we're going to announce this together. Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our invitation this morning is for you to have a broken and contrite heart before the Lord, responding to however the Spirit has spoken to you and receiving his grace. And as a tangible experience of receiving that grace, joining with the body of Christ Walking forward, breaking off a piece of bread, dipping it in the juice, and taking it into your body. There'll be gluten-free available over on this side. If you're here today and you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of Antioch Church, this table is for you. Come. If you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, we would implore you, rather than taking this, to take Jesus himself. He has made himself available to you at a great cost, at much brokenness. Not to guilt you, but to bless you and build you up that you might know him and become his servant and a servant of others. There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Pastors, male and female prayer warriors are here for you, church. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts at this time, thanking you for the goodness of your word, which breaks us down, that it might build us back up. Lord, it is a strange thing in these days to walk into a church and to not hear so much rah-rah, but to hear that the way into your kingdom is through things like weakness, and the way into service is through things like failure. This is real. And we come before you with real needs, asking you to sustain us, to nourish us, to build us back up and assure us in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our failure. Lord, apart from you, we could do nothing. Apart from you, we would be nothing but failures forever. And yet, you have redefined it all by sending Jesus to die for us and rise again and then sending your Spirit upon us who believe we are raised up And affirmed as beloved successes in your eyes. Not failures. And so Lord I pray that in these next moments. On this day of Pentecost that we celebrate. We would respond to your spirit in whatever way your spirit is leading. That those who know you would be drawn closer to you. And those who do not know you would take a step toward you today. Thank you Lord for hearing us. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.